So I keep thinking about this cosmopolitan socialist idea, which I wrote about in Against the Web. And um, what was interesting in that was, I, I, I think that that model is definitely the one we need. This cosmopolitanism with a ground in materialist politics and Marxist analysis of the economic base is the best way to go about things. We're in a global society, we're in a deeply interconnected one. We have to overcome all sorts of legacies of division, abuse, and oppression, but we also have to create cohesion and integration and actually build models for things that are better. And part of how we do that is by really looking for synthesis, looking for points of reference. I, you know, there is like a spiritual, for lack of a better word, element to this. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. We hope that you're all enjoying uh, the emergence of summer, uh, wherever you happen to be. Today, we have a guest, Megan Day. Uh, she is a writer for Jacobin, uh, who I've read for a long time, so this is really exciting for me. Uh, and we're joined with Victor as well, and we're going to be talking about cosmopolitan socialism. So thanks a lot for coming on the Pill Pod, Megan. It's really great to have you. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I just kind of wanted to throw out there first is... This concept of cosmopolitan socialism has deep roots uh, in the left-wing tradition, uh, but it's probably best associated now with Michael Brooks, uh, who argued for a kind of cosmopolitan socialism at the end of his book Against the Web, uh, which is actually really a critique of different right-wing thinkers that we've talked about on the show before. Uh, but he kind of characterizes it less as a kind of set of policies uh, and more as an attitude. It reminded me a lot of the old Roman saying that Nothing human is foreign to me. Uh, that was the kind of outlook he adopted in this book, that he's somebody who'll read Cornell West and the Tao Te Ching uh, and Karl Marx, and rather than discriminating between them, he'll try to find something of value in each of those writings. Is that the kind of sense that you have of what a cosmopolitan attitude might be, Victor? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about the word cosmopolitanism is uh, even up to now, I mean, I, as a PhD student, I grade a class on that covers a lot of like critical race theory stuff. And, and I noticed that there cosmopolitanism is kind of a dirty word mm -hmm. a little bit. And I think it still has a tradition, of, uh, like a mixed tradition of being associated with some some like political or attitude that's supposed to erase difference and therefore like be right. kind of violent towards particular differences. But I think what Michael Brooks is doing is maybe trying to bring that uh, to make that a less dirty word. And I wonder if you had thoughts about that, Megan, actually. Yeah, I think that's precisely right. So I was listening to an old podcast that Michael was on where he was sort of explaining his use of the term. And he acknowledged that it might sound to today's ears, at least in our, our sort of um, lay discourse, it might sound a little bit like he's talking about like Brexiteers in London, like, you know, cosmopolitan, like when fancy people hang out in coastal cities or like big international cities. Um, and it's it's not that the term as he's using it is devoid of the connotation of large kinetic international cities. It's just that he's not using it to denote like cultural elites or something like that, which I think is how it's commonly used. Um, instead, as he explained, his his idea of cosmopolitan socialism is really meant to evoke the idea that in a large cities going all the way back through the ages, you would find different groups of people mm -hmm. intermingling with each other and uh, taking bits and pieces of each other's culture and actually really um, coming to understand each other's humanity through sheer exposure. 
um, obviously not without the superimposition of incredibly violent hierarchies constantly and always, right? But that people's exposure to each other um, and their openness to adopting elements of each other's culture might actually um, provide a, a window into how to build solidarity and how to actually politically break down those hierarchies. So that seemed to me to be what he was trying to get across with the term cosmopolitan. But then there's another element to this too, which is just the actual term cosmopolitan, meaning you know, a, a citizen of the cosmos, a citizen of the universe, a citizen of everywhere, a universal citizen. It's a sort of a call for a new universalism on the left, one that doesn't ignore or erase the particular, but that actually sees it as a, a, a laudable goal to try to find unearth our shared humanity, right? And I do think that the reason that he feels that might be important is because if you look at the popularity of the, you know, the um, intellectual dark web and various right-wing figures, you see that they are really feeding off of and gaining a lot of um, momentum because the left does seem to reject that kind of universalism in favor of, you know, particularism. Mm -hmm. And it causes people who bristle at that to look for alternatives, right? So I think that's the reason why it's tacked onto the end of the against the web or at least why he started thinking about it in that context yeah i think that's very true um and it is worth noting that the original connotation or denotation um of cosmopolitanism uh was in the greek uh so cosmos meaning universe and polos meaning city uh or community right so you were literally a citizen of the universe or you're a part of one city the totality of humanity uh, and the original connotation uh, in the philosophical literature, going through Stoicism, for example, through people like um, Adam Smith, uh, was really this attitude that, look, you know, I'm going to embrace the wisdom of the ages, wherever it comes from. Uh, I'm going to try to be open-minded in my approach to difference rather than closed-minded, uh, which is what you often see, for instance, with nationalism, right, uh, let alone imperialism. But I think one of the reasons why some people in the left are reticent to embrace the cosmopolitan label is uh, it's really become dissociated in modernity uh, from this classical connotation, uh, where instead it's associated with a kind of militant, even imperial liberal universalism. Uh, the way that I usually see people use the term cosmopolitanism is to refer to someone like John Stuart Mills, right, who would say things like, we should be cosmopolitan liberals, but if that means we need to intervene in India and colonize it to bring it into the family of civilized nations, uh, that's what we need to do. Uh, and contemporaneously, of course, we can think of neoliberalism as a kind of cosmopolitan doctrine, stressing the need to incorporate everybody around the globe in the cosmopolitan family of market nations. Right? And obviously, we don't want that. Uh, and so I can understand the temptation of many on the left to try to resist these kinds of cosmopolitanism right? Um, or internationalism, however you want to frame it. But I really do think that the kind of classical cosmopolitanism uh, Michael was talking about is a lot more consistent with our value system, right? Uh, cherishing humanity for its own sake, wanting to make sure that everyone, regardless of where they come from, has a fair shot at life. Uh, and I can break down some of my own thoughts on how that could be achieved, but I just want to know if you think that's true also, Victor. Is this Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, you made me think of a couple things uh, there. One, one of them was just, you know, you're reminding me of my sometimes frustration with some corners of the left that it's like as soon as a term gets associated with something, right? Like you see the same thing with liberalism. Like it, in some corners, it's like that just means neoliberalism. Therefore, like we want to be against the liberals. And that's why we see on on like a lot of uh, cringy like Twitter accounts, right? That, that have like the, the hammer and sickle. It's just like everything liberal is bad. But I guess like I think what's nice about what Michael Brooks was trying to do with cosmopolitanism is like take one of those terms, right? In this case being cosmopolitanism and 
be like, no, no, there's actually like good versions of it. There's actually like ways in which this term uh, can actually encompass something that's super important to any left wing ethic. And, you know, to me, I just see it as something that I've always been interested in since I started my my studies was just like trying to recover this concept of the common good. You know, I think it's so important to try to uh, recapture it. And I did notice uh, I did read the article you sent us, Megan, uh, about unionization mm -hmm. efforts. And uh, yeah, of course, I, I can see why it's totally relevant there, right? This idea that, uh, you know, multiracial union uh, where people who at the time, right, this was, of course, late uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, right, can can find their material common interest. Um, and I think, you know, it made me think about um, today a lot of things that I believe in as left-wing causes that I wish were framed more along the lines of common interest. And I have in mind things like defund the police and even like prison abolition, which are two things that I, I just worry that they're framed too much around like particularism, right? Or of, of the way that those things disproportionately affect uh, like one segment of the population, race usually. And of course that needs to be talked about. But I feel like there's an opportunity with those things to be like, no, actually if we you know, radically reform prisons or change the way we do policing. That's actually going to be good for everybody, right? Like we're all going to, uh, we're all going to benefit from that. Framing it that way, it, it seems like there might be an opportunity. And, you know, I wonder if you had thoughts about that. Yeah, that, I think that you're hitting on something, which is that on the left today, to just put it in very plain terms, mm -hmm. it does seem like there's a very loud contingent of people who think that the idea that something would be good for everybody is actually kind of insulting because, <laughs> we, have, because we have so much grotesque inequality that they actually would rather emphasize the ways in which it is specifically good for the people who usually bad things happen to, and that might also be bad for the things that people might be bad for the people to whom good things usually happen. Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. it does seem like there's an there's an emphasis on flipping the script. Like if you're at the bottom of the sort of um, social or political hierarchy, we're going to elevate you to the top. And if you're at the top, we're going to suppress you to the bottom. And that seems to be the mode through which left-wing politics is often articulated now. Um, that is in contrast to a kind of universalist politics that says that as my one of my favorite um, quotes from socialist history is the sort of um, British labor movement um, motto, which is that the cause of labor is the hope of the world. The, the working class is the universal class. We're not all in favor with the working class because it is better than all the other classes. It's just simply the case that the working class is, is strategically located and is big enough and has the self-interest enough that were it to unite to overthrow the structures that are oppressing it, all of us would be liberated from capitalism, from imperialism, and so on. Um, and so this kind of universalism seems to have been buried under an emphasis on, um, you know, how to, um, I guess, center, you often hear language like centering um, marginalized voices and things like that. These are perfectly understandable. And I also want to say, while I'm on the topic of it being understandable, that I agree with what you said earlier about um, a sort of hollow um, universalism that the, the especially the like center right is is known for um, the center right will often speak about um, you know use use the language of universalism to actually sort of like shove capitalists and imperialist hegemony down everybody's throats right like think about um, the kind of um, universalism or internationalism that you see at a place like Davos, the kind of like, mm -hmm. we all came from every corner of the world here together to 
continue oppressing the people of all lands, right? And uh, cl clearly, clearly, that's not the type of universalism that we want to pursue. But we don't need to chuck the whole thing out. And I think that that's something that um, Michael was really getting at um, in his in his section on this and against the web is that we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And in fact, the idea of a common good and the idea of a universal benefit through struggle is something that is not just um, a proud legacy of the left, but is actually critical to our success. And that's the reason why I sent you guys that article about um, that that union, the, the triple alliance of unions in New Orleans, which I'm happy to explain now because I assume your readers have not read it. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll post a link, though. OK, good. So let me just give you let me just explain the actual, um, you know, the, the content of the article so that, that you can see how it relates. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to send this to you guys is because I remember Michael responding very favorably to it um, um, right um, actually when it came out, which was not too long before he died. And I think that it's because it resonated with some of these themes. Um, so in New Orleans in the 1860s, white dock workers were actually, um, they were immigrant, you know, mostly German, English immigrant dock workers were actually anti-slavery for completely self-interested reasons. They, there was nearby labor that was not being compensated with money. And of course, it was driving their own wages down. So they believed that, you know, you should eliminate this practice of slavery. Didn't seem to benefit them anyway. Um, and that would hopefully result in raising their wages, raising wages across the board, which would redound to their benefit. Um, so slavery is abolished, right? Um, and then suddenly you have, of course, they hadn't necessarily thought about this. Um, you have ex-slaves who are completely disenfranchised. They're completely destitute. Uh, they have no property. They have they have nothing um, but the clothes on their backs and they show up on the on the docks in New Orleans. And now they want to work on the docks in, in New Orleans and they're working for way less pay because they can't command high pay because they have no structural leverage in society and because there's so much racism. So um, this is pissing off the white dock workers, right? Because um, now they're still having the same issue, maybe not as bad as before, but now they're competing against low paid labor on the docks. So they, whereas they had been essentially abolitionists in a space of about a decade, these white dock workers were actually saying things like, send these black people back to Africa. Like they had become incredibly racist like overnight just because they, the situation had changed, right? Um, and this created, created a situation throughout the rest of, throughout the next three decades or so where white and black dock workers were um, very, they had uh, tense relations, shall we say, um, usually uni unidirectional tense relations um, on the docks in New Orleans. And the white workers would not allow the black workers to um, join their unions. Um, they they uh, tried to stay as far away from them as possible. Um, and they were constantly trying to convince the bosses not to hire them and so on. Um, so the black dock workers um, formed their own unions, right? And this creates an issue where the bosses um, Whenever one group is goes on strike, the bosses can just call the others in as, as strike breakers, right? White workers go on strike. Now you've got the black workers coming in as strike breakers. And the same is true in the reverse. Um, the black workers are consistently saying, like, we've got to stop this. You guys have got to get over your racism because it's not working. Eventually, the white workers actually realize that um, this is true. They're continually losing. They, they can't actually keep it up. This level of segregation is undermining their ability to actually embody solidarity and practice 
purpose to their own mutual benefit, to their common good. And so they create a, an, a formation called the Triple Alliance, which I believe is two white unions and one black union on the New Orleans docks, which encompasses everybody. And um, the Triple Alliance goes on strike together for the first time. And it's like a light bulb goes off. Guess what? If you go on strike together, then you shut you shut the whole thing down. You know, they won like miraculous, um, you know, miraculous concessions from the bosses and so on. I believe it was a general strike in New Orleans at the time. So actually black and white workers throughout the city were inspired by this enough to walk off the job in various other sectors and so on. Um, and from this point onward on the New Orleans docks, they decided that they were going to institute a policy that um, black and white workers needed to work together on shifts. They called it a half and half policy. They basically mm -hmm. realized overnight that the level of segregation that they had been imposing on themselves was undermining their ability to actually improve their conditions. And so they remedied this with something called a half and half policy, which is that every single shift was supposed to have both black and white workers on it to reintegrate or to integrate for the first time these two groups that had been kept apart, um, which had resulted in, in both groups essentially being economically punished right um and so from from that point onward that was the that was the policy on the new orleans docks i could go into it more it's very interesting it's sort of there's some interesting jim crow stuff that happens later on but the point that i want to make is that the spirit of solidarity is is not it's not just a value that we hold um, for like squishy moral reasons, though I think we should, right? Mm -hmm. It's also it's also the case that that's the only path forward um, for us to actually win against the tiny minority that is in control of everything is coming together. And that means finding common good where perhaps it seems elusive, which it certainly did in the racist South after the Civil War, right? Um, and so, and I also think there's another lesson in here, which is that people you you can't you can't scrub out racism just through sheer exposure mm -hmm. but if you are in, insisting on segregation you are insisting on a certain degree of racism if that makes sense so like integration is not a silver bullet but it is a precondition for anti-racism and i think that the reason that's important to bring up is that um i don't want to put it too harshly, but it does seem on the left today that there are certain ways in which segregation, like um, like mm. various forms of like self-imposed segregation are, are kind of in vogue. Um, mm. And I think that we should actually push against that. I think that we should be pushing for people who are different from one another to spend as much time with each other, thinking about how they can um, achieve mutual benefit and achieve the common good as possible. And that that actually will go a long way towards some kind of anti-racist agenda. So that's the reason I tell you this whole parable about the New Orleans dock workers. I think you can see why it connects to the idea of cosmopolitan socialism now. Yeah, no, for sure. That seems really, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, me neither. Um, I think that's really I, well I said. Find, I find, I find that the, the, this, this sort of like new, I like, you know, putting it delicately, like, like kind of self-imposed the way you put it, you know, um, segregation. Yeah, it worries me. It's something I definitely worry about on the left. So yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it and agree strongly with that. Actually, when I was reading your piece, uh, it reminded me uh, of some of the criticisms I would make of somebody like John Judas. Um, so for our readers who don't know, John Judas uh, is the author of The Socialist Awakening. Uh, and he puts forward this argument that socialists shouldn't be internationalists uh, because ultimately the only way to achieve things like high levels of unionization uh, and a high quality of life for workers in the United States uh, is through the auspices of the nation state. And we have to prioritize our own nationals uh, over concern with others. 
Uh, and kind of what I was thinking about, Megan, uh, when I was reading your article, is how some of the reasons that uh, you draw, you develop in that article could be applied to kind of criticize Judas and his position. Uh, not just squishy moral reasons, as you put it, uh, but also strategic ones, because what I was mm. thinking is that, well, that's a really difficult thing to actually do today, because if we try to achieve better conditions for workers in our own country, as it were, uh, then capital and many different firms are just going to leave and go somewhere else uh, where they can exploit labor mm -hmm. in other parts of the world, right? So the only way that we could actually achieve genuine uh, democratic socialism in one country would be to try to achieve it everywhere or to at least achieve relatively high standards uh, in the workplace across the globe, uh, which, of course, is what capital doesn't want to see happen, right? So I'm wondering what you think of that argument. Do you think that what you're talking about in the article could apply beyond just like the kind of unionization issue in the United States to the international terrain uh, that we see right now uh, and some of the arguments that some democratic socialists would make uh, arguing that we should have a kind of nation state socialism. Yeah, I think I think that you're right about that. I mean, obviously, Michael meant for it to be an argument, not just for universalism, but for internationalism um, mm -hmm. specifically. And I think that's for that very reason, I guess, to connect the sort of like um, the micro level and the macro level. If you think about this, um, this common slogan on the left, which, well, on the, I guess you could say the very, very broad left, I would say it's more associated with like radical liberals, um, is to, to stay in your lane, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of uh, chastising people to stay in their lane, um, essentially to not approach people um, who um, are different from them in a spirit of, you know, inquiry or even um, solidarity. Sometimes gestures of solidarity are sometimes actually like um, waved away as being somehow sort of um, unasked for or offensive. Um, and that's pretty common on the left, unfortunately, right. in the United States today. So just think about that, the whole stay in your lane concept. It does seem if you actually blow that up into a general principle and then apply it to what the question of how to building socialism in one country or many countries, you're getting this theory that the best way to achieve socialism is to simply stay in our lane, our lane being the United States of America, right? And then if everybody else stays in their lane, then we can all individually advance our own projects and eventually they will weave together into some sort of better whole than the whole that we have now. Um, and I, I think that the idea of cosmopolitan socialism is one of an interlacing, right? Uh, both on the very personal level, like from all the way from the micro personal level, like you should be exposed to different kinds of people from yourself. You should seek to expose yourself to different kinds of people from yourself right. in a spirit of honest and respectful curiosity and um, empathy, right? And it's and and that's how you're going to you know develop a coherent perspective that can allow you to implement practices in your own life that can actually build solidarity and community um, strategically. And the same is true on a national level, which is that we need to be interlacing with people from different cultures and other countries and developing a shared perspective together that can actually allow us to develop practices that actually embody the spirit of solidarity. Um, so I guess I agree that, um, it's, it's applicable to international context. And I think that you can sort of run it, run the principle all the way up and down the scale from micro to macro. And it's, it holds pretty consistently. Yeah, I yeah. think so as well. Um, no, go ahead, Victor. I was just going to say, uh, I mean, yeah, when I was reading the article, I also thought about how a lot of the arguments that are made about like that worry about borders, right? Is like the more and more people are going to come in and then they're going to lower wages or whatever. And it made me think about uh, just how, yeah, how analogous, I guess, at the time when, when slavery ended and blacks started joining, uh, how it was like a similar dilemma. But uh, yeah, I think your article nicely explains um, some of the, the answer towards that. But I was 
thinking about, I think you, you touched on, we've touched on it a couple times. Like, I think there's like really like a, a, a difficult tension, uh, with between, I guess, particularism and universalism in these, in like, I guess, like, how are we going to properly do left-wing struggle? Because I think, you know, somebody that probably all of us are sort of opposed to on the left somewhat, this, this attitude that worries about, um, you know, being, being, uh, you know, staying in our lane, as you put it, I get, I think, you know, a lot of the rationale for that, I think the argument that they would make would be, you know, we have to worry about things like cultural colonialism, right? Yeah. If we hang around with, you know, if, 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 if I just like, you know, don't, uh, find my space, you know, with, with my kind of people, then I'm going to be absorbed into this sort of like white hegemonic culture. Like, I think that's the worry. And there's definitely something to that. So that's why I say it kind of like it remains like a somewhat of a puzzle. But I, st- I, I personally think that um, the common good seems so much more important, I suppose. And, you know, this came up in one of your other articles, Megan, too, I think when you were uh, talking about it was the one about um, the Trump. I wish I don't have the, the title. Oh, the culture war one. Yeah, the cultural one, right? That was, and I think well, I was you know, going to say the same thing. Go, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So that one, you know, you you talk about people. I think you were identifying this tension between uh, like an attachment to culture versus our material interests, and uh, I don't know. Do you like how, how do you think about that puzzle I've tried to lay out there? I'd like to frame it in a somewhat different way. Uh, I think in your article about Trump and the culture war, uh, you really elegantly pointed out how a lot of times these cultural issues are used as wedges uh, to break uh, break up working class solidarity. Uh, And I think that's a serious issue that we have to be concerned about. Uh, And I think also for tactical and moral reasons, like we've been expressing, uh, that's one of the good reasons why we should embrace a kind of universalism uh, in order to fight against uh, plutocratic power, amongst other kinds of oppression. Uh, But I think that one of the worries that people have, uh, and Victor, you gestured to this, uh, is that the kind of cosmopolitanism that's going to emerge on the left, if we do that, is going to be superficial at best uh, and expropriative at worst. Uh, You can think of things like cultural appropriation, right? Uh, And I wanted to talk to Michael about this uh, because, you know, it's one of the thoughts I had when I was reading his book, and sadly, we'll never get to have that conversation. Uh, But Slavoj Žižek, who our listeners will know, we talk about quite a bit, uh, has a good criticism of this, where he says, one of the problems with liberal cosmopolitans uh, is that they want the fat-free, sugar-free diet version of other cultures, right? Something that's not really different in a radical way and doesn't challenge your convictions. Uh, And he says, if we really want to be cosmopolitans, we need to learn to appreciate the other in their radical alterity. Uh, Now, I think that there's problems with this kind of claim, not least of which is the kind of how radical radical authority can be. Uh, I think it's sometimes overstated in his work. And the ambiguity of what that would mean also. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think, you know, there's people have more in common than they do uh, that divides them, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. But yeah. H- how do you think we would respond to this? How do we avoid things like cultural appropriation, not appreciating the other in their alterity, uh, expropriating their culture for ourselves uh, in a kind of demeaning way? Yeah, I mean, I think that cosmopolitan socialism at its heart also, and I don't know, maybe I didn't emphasize this enough earlier, but it it really stresses the degree to which people's differences should be celebrated and enjoyed and like shared rather than flattened and homogenized and erased. Like that's a very, very important distinction. I think that the, the idea of cosmopolitan socialism, as I understand it from Michael's perspective, was like to imagine... Or he wanted people to be imagining some of the some of the great cities 
today and the way that people who are very different from each other um, commingle with each other in those cities while also preserving what's distinct about their cultures. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if that sounds sort of like hand wavy or like a cop out to say like both and you know what I mean but that I think that's the truth to be honest I mean I think that like there's there's we had mentioned it earlier there's a version of of quote unquote cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism that really is about like um uni universalizing dominant culture and dominant values um and that's not the, what the thing that Michael is talking about he's talking about like I guess you could imagine it um, as a sort of like kinetic process of like encountering and trading and evolving on a cultural level. I also, I've, okay, look, I'm going to stumble through this because I've never actually talked about this before, um, this, used this example before, but it just popped into my mind a minute ago when you were talking. Um, I'm trying to think of an example from my own life of where there was a cultural issue that actually made me feel like a genuine pang of like, Hey, wait a second. I actually, I actually care about that as a person who has like a marginalized identity, right? And we all feel that. And I think that that's very legitimate. So here's an example. I read an article recently about um, how there are like very few lesbian bars in New York City and even fewer across the country. Really? Um, yes. Um, there the the, le the lesbian bar is like a dying institution, right? Um, and what and I personally was like, damn, that sucks. Lesbian bars are awesome. I spent time in them when I was younger, it was very important for me, right? Like I don't anymore, but like, I don't even drink anymore and I'm in a long-term relationship, but you know, I mean, there, it was important for me to hang out in lesbian bars when I was younger. Um, so that's a cultural issue that I genuinely care about. And I wouldn't say that the type of cosmopolitan socialism that we're talking about would simply try to say like, well, whatever, you can just go to another bar, right? Just, there's a lot of bars that have like, you could just go to another bar. No, I mean, I think we want things like that, right? Like we want people to be able to have their own spaces that where they can create their own culture and enjoy their own culture right um but this is what i think is the crux of the cosmopolitan socialism question it's not that you should simply eliminate all the lesbian bars and everyone has to just go hang out in whatever other bars where everybody else is hanging out it's that in order to preserve the lesbian bar as an institution you would actually need to have a mass politics, which lesbians are far too small of a percentage of the population to actually affect on their own, that pushed back against the forces of not of patriarchy, not of like toxic masculinity and not of heteronormativity, but frankly of the um, uh, incredibly high real estate prices that have made it mm. impossible to maintain bars that cater to a small portion of clientele. Right, right. And so like, that's, that's what happened to the lesbian bar that I used to go to in San Francisco, the Lex Lexington mm. club is I used to go there after work and play pool. And it was just like a blast. I was in my early twenties and I met friends there. I met people that I dated there and so on. And, uh, the Lex is no more. I went to its goodbye party. It was very sad. Um, and the reason why is that they couldn't afford their rent. And also furthermore, a lot of the people who used to go to that bar moved out of San Francisco because, um, San Francisco has become a, a major tech city and tech is dominated by men and men who make a lot of money and it was just wasn't it wasn't amenable to the existence of the lexington club anymore um people you know every lesbian i knew who went to the lexington club lexington club like shacked up with somebody moved to oakland got a dog like they're not going to the lex anymore you know they can't live in san francisco anymore anyway so 
the reason that I'm, <laughs> you understand why I'm just the first yeah, no, time I'm trying to example. actually draw this parallel is, is that yeah. I think like in order to preserve the Lexington club, you would have had to have a mass, a mass anti-capitalist politics in San Francisco that made it possible for the city to remain amenable to this particular marginalized group, like actually hanging around. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and keeping its own institutions alive. And that's the goal of cosmopolitan socialism is to actually make it possible for people to experience their own cultures um, and to also experience each other's cultures. And I will say on the whole self-segregation point, one thing that I loved about the Lexington Club in the early 2010s is that there would be people, because it had a pool table and the doors were always open, people would come in who were not lesbians and they would play pool and it was not an issue. It was fucking great. But you know what? Mm. They would hear, they would hear like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, like they would hear like lesbian bands being played, like, or just like really classic queer, like punk music being played over, over the stereo. Like that's the kind of vision of cosmopolitan socialism that we're talking about to, to not literally, but also as a metaphor, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I should say that uh, when it comes to Victor and I, you, you'll always get a rise out of us whenever it comes to a Save Our Bar uh, kind of uh, project, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of my formative uh, experiences were in bars as ourselves. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's a great example uh, of exactly what we're talking about. And actually, this foreground is the last thing I want us to talk about, which is the way that a cosmopolitan socialism can defend difference. Uh, that's distinct from the way, for instance, that the political right approaches difference, right? Because uh, there's a conservative argument you can make for respecting a certain kind of particularism. Uh, nationalists make arguments like this all the time. I'm thinking of somebody like Yoram Mazzoni. Uh, but what's distinctive about the kind of conservative arguments for difference is precisely that they want a kind of silo difference, right? We have our group in our space and our nation in our country, uh, and you have yours over there, and we don't interact with one another at all. Uh, whereas when I think of cosmopolitan socialism, it's precisely that we can take pride uh, and a certain degree of joy in the existence of difference in our community, um, including manifest cultural difference, because that's an opportunity for us to learn and develop as people. Uh, so I lived in Mexico for a couple of years. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the LGBT community in Mexico, which was quite a learning experience for me, let me tell you, for and several different metrics, right? Uh, but what really struck me by doing this uh, was how this wasn't just an abstract ideology, which I think is how we sometimes approach difference when we're not really exposed to it. Uh, these are people, they had different opinions, different lifestyles, different hopes, different dreams. Uh, and I learned from them by interacting with them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and I don't think I would have been able to develop in that way unless I had this kind of exposure uh, and was actually able to learn from them in this one-on-one -on -one way, right? Uh, so when I think of cosmopolitan socialism, these are the kind of opportunities that come to my mind, right? Uh, the chance to really engage with other people who feel very differently and live very different lives than you in your community uh, and use the experiments in life that they're engaging in to inform your own existence and try to develop as a person, which is very different in my perspective um, than the kind of conservative siloed approach to difference that you'll see people like nationalists make. Oh, sorry, the kind of uh, positions that nationalists want to take. So I'm not sure what you think about that, Victor. Does that sound plausible? Yeah, I mean, I think that also like those experiences, I mean, you know, I've, I've had similar experiences, but I think like what you actually realize is uh, kind of like also that this there, I mean, it's cheesy to say, but like the sameness, right? Like the fact that actually we all have uh, like shared interest. And I think maybe that's what's at the core of uh, of cosmopolitan socialism, right? Is that, yeah, like there's these, I mean, you know, you don't want to call them, they're not superficial differences, right? There's like real kind of like lifestyle or differences about like, practices that are going to lead to some conception of what the good life is going to be for you. 
but then ultimately like the fact that we all want the 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 um the circumstances and the material conditions to live that good life that's all shared in common um and i think like maybe that's what those those experiences um kind of reveal i suppose i'll also add that i mean while we're on i guess it's I've been maybe over criticizing the left a little bit here because I think the right deserves far more criticism for yeah. like this kind of like like you said Matt for for enforcing this kind of like difference as a difference as a pretext for separation or segregation but the mm -hmm. left falls into that trap a lot yeah. of the time too um and yeah I think one of the things that is concerning about that is that there does seem to be sometimes in some left spaces a kind of um social reward system for noticing and even dramatizing differences between people who live lives that on a global on a global scale are quite similar to each mm -hmm. other sometimes i do think about the fact that like um differences uh between myself and uh, other people for example will be exaggerated over like twitter right and i'm like very aware that the person who's doing that is like also at a white collar job typing on their macbook telling me that we could never possibly see eye to eye that we we could that i couldn't possibly understand a single thing about their experience and so on and so forth and it does strike me that um Hyperbole you know, on Twitter? Never. Never. <laughs> it, it strikes me that the, the two of us live lives that are like so similar compared to a like garment worker in Bangladesh or like yeah. a rice farmer in Vietnam or just there are so many people on this world who live lives that are so different. And I even feel, and perhaps it, it sounds it sounds naive, but I even feel that I have something critical in common with a garment worker in Bangladesh and a rice and a, a rice field worker in Vietnam, and that it is our responsibility to uncover uncover what it is that we share in common, and to emphasize that in our mutual struggle for a better world for all of us. I know that sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish. I think that it's actually kind of sad that it sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I think that's like a, maybe is a is a reflection on like the the sorry state of universalist discourse on the left is that it's kind of like hand waved away. I think that it's kind of been Aligned, this kind of discourse about, you know, like shared humanity and common good has been maligned as kind of like woo woo, like um, unthinking, unserious, um, like um, like nostrums, you know, just like mm -hmm. problem, right? Um, it's kind of it kind of people when they hear stuff like that, they kind of think like, oh right, and we're all from Mother Africa, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. that's the impression that people get. But I, I really, again, I don't. I think we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because the truth of the matter is that we are facing a global ecological crisis, and also right. capitalism is a global system that requires people to fight it in tandem with each other all across the globe it literally will not work our resistance to capitalism will not work if it's nation by nation so we do are we are going to have to find um find it within ourselves to get over um our condescension toward these um notions of like a shared or common humanity right it's actually yeah. very critical that we actually um um elevate them over over what divides us yeah, I, I I have thoughts about you know why why that is. I mean, I think it, it's so true uh, this hand waving away and kind of sneering at that attitude. And I think there's probably like two main reasons because I think about this a lot. Um, and I think one of them is, I mean, we do live in this age of I think cynicism where we kind of value. There, it's funny. I, I always notice, and I think Twitter makes this worse, and social media makes it worse that there's like a it's like, you know, being cynical and kind of being a doomer about how bad everything is, is like, is, is almost like 
I don't know if it's a requisite for being cool, but it almost seems like it's 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 a it's a component of like, OK, like he gets it. It's like if you're seeing how terrible everything is and like, you know, I think that that idea that you outlined that we've been talking about, there's an optimism to it. And I think that optimism is a little bit out uh, like in, it's out of fashion a little bit. And I think part of the reason for that, too, is probably that obviously we all know that there's a huge history of, uh, you know, Western civilization western imperialism right using the idea that this is for the common good right in the past like conquest and all these things so like there's i think also a kind of aftershock of being like hey they lied to us when they said that this was in the common good when they said they were going to come and colonize us right and it's like so then there's like a skepticism to that idea um yeah but yeah i I just wanted to end uh, with this and then i'll let megan have the last word um I think that's one of the reasons why Michael's work in particular resonated with so many people because he could be a very cynical, extremely critical guy. And you saw that in his programming, right? Nobody got angry uh, like he did. But he was kind of optimistic at heart. I remember when I talked to him, he was really upbeat, really interested in a lot of things, uh, took joy in a lot of the stuff that he was engaging in, fascinated uh, by Taoism uh, and various kinds of uh, spiritual practices, uh, and doing so in a sincere and respectful way. And I found that really refreshing, since a lot of the people I encounter on the left are very cynical uh, and very angry sometimes. Uh, And it can be a bit of a frustrating thing sometimes for me as a leftist. But what I wanted to say is... um, as conclusion is this whole conversation has reminded me a bit of Terry Eagleton's critique uh, of militant particularism in his book, Illusions of Postmodernism, uh, where he says that, look, the kind of siloing that some leftists want actually echoes the kind of approach to difference that you'd find in the work of conservative authors. Uh, you know, people like Edmund Burke, Joseph de Maistre, um, even someone like Michael Oakeshott on occasion, right? Where there's this idea that, uh, as Megan put it, we all have our lane and we stick to it. Uh, and... The best kind of culture is one that's uniform, homogenous, and doesn't interact with any others. Uh, And I can understand, as Victor said, the temptation to maybe want to go that route, given the perils of universalism uh, and its association with imperialism through the 19th and 20th century. But I think that the kind of cosmopolitanism that we all seem to be wanting is something that's much more in line with Kwame Appiah's uh, conception of it, uh, which is that we respect culture and difference, but we respect them uh, because we recognize that Culture is important to other human beings uh, who are very much like us. Uh, and just as we would want, want our culture and our practices and our individual uh, particularities to be wiped out, uh, so too we have wouldn't to... Want re- them. We wouldn't want them. Sorry, yeah. Uh, so too uh, we don't want to see that happen to other people. So that's the way I would conceive of the kind of moral grounding uh, for cosmopolitan socialism. I mean, I think that's as good a place to end it as any, but since you're giving me the last word, I'll mm-hmm. build off of that and say that I think that... Um, I think that actually a lot of people on the left um, probably agree with us. They just get caught in a kind of like social or um, conversational logic that cuts against it. And and to 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 this point, to evidence this point, I would say that if people actually really look into their souls and ask themselves why they became socialists to begin with, if we're talking about socialists in particular, I think that at base it's because you know that a person who has, you know, multiple millions of dollars is fundamentally the same as a person who's flat broke mm-hmm. and that it's ex- it, the, the way that our society is structured does not actually reflect that. And that's what makes you angry. And that is the yeah. thing that is, that's the core of your 
political orientation, actually, when you boil it down, that's the core of your political orientation if you're a socialist, is that you know that there are, there are people who are living lives of luxury and there are people who are toiling and being exploited and that at base, they are both the same type of entity, which is just a person. And that, that's, that's not fair. And so you actually do understand somewhere deep inside yourself, you do understand that this common morality is actually the root or the soul of socialism, or sorry, this common humanity um, is the root or the soul of socialism. And, and the task is simply to try to like bring that out in practice, not just as a sort of like basic assumption from which everything else flows, right? Okay, well, thanks a lot, Megan, for coming on uh, the PillPod. We'll provide the links uh, to your articles. Uh, but solidarity. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm hoping that we can have many more in the future. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much, Megan. That was great. Thank you guys so much. It was such a blast. Thanks.